today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 9, and 19 through 23. The word of God speaks to us. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Awesome. Thanks, sis. Good job. Guys, good morning. How are we doing? Good. You guys are so fun to be with. I love getting to be in Frontline Edmonds. And uh, if I haven't got to meet you yet, my name is Josh Cray. I serve as the lead pastor of Frontline Downtown. And it's, uh, it's always good for my soul to get to be with you guys. I was remembering this morning, early on, it was nine years ago, and uh, Pastor Dave and the leadership community was planting, you guys were planting Frontline Edmonds in the cavernous horrible auditorium at UCO. And it was just spotty. It would be like, we'd be starting at nine o'clock and there would be like me and two other people there. And it was dark and depressing. And I remember having just multiple Sundays wondering, I wonder if that church is going to church. And uh, by, by God's grace, nine years later, man, this is such a healthy congregation and God is working deeply. Um, it's a joy that Pastor Dave and his family are on sabbatical right now. Dave's the lead pastor of Frontline Downtown and they're getting, a, they're getting a good break and they're doing great and they send their love to you guys. And it's been awesome to just watch the leadership community here grow with Dave uh, on sabbatical and just to see a high level of unity. You guys are taking care of each other. Groups are cranking up and uh, I'm expecting God to do really profound things over the course of this fall. So it's fun to be here. Thank you, uh, thank you to the Edmund elders for letting me wrap up 1 Corinthians 16. Can we pause for just a second and literally out loud thank God by putting our hands together for what he's done as we've walked through this book? It's been... Uh, <coughs> it's... It's been, one of the, it's been one of the hardest books of the Bible to preach through, and that's coming from a guy that's preached through the book of Job. Uh, this book has been tough, man. It has been really challenging. Uh, we expected it to be kind of hard, and it was way harder than what we thought, but our Father's given us awesome gifts over the course of walking through this book. And, and I feel like across the board, all five of our congregations are a little bit deeper, a little bit more faithful, a little bit more excited about the things of the Spirit, and uh, unity's just a little bit higher. So praise be to God for that. Now, uh, today, if you got a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians 16. We're going to cover the entire end, the last chapter today, and uh, I'm really looking forward to the things we get to talk about. So Open up your Bible. I'm going to pray for you guys. You pray for me, and we're going to do some work together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your faithfulness here. 
And uh, even as we look back on what you've done over the course of the last years, we've walked through this letter to the Corinthians. We just want to thank you for your presence and your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. God, it's an it's a unbelievable miracle of your providence and your wisdom that you superintended the writings of these letters. You included them in your canon, and you're still shaping and transforming lives with these books. So Lord, would you help us to be attentive today? Would you help us to be humble today? And uh, Father, you can, give, you can give gifts to every man and woman in this room in ways I can't even comprehend. So would you bless them today? We thank you for Dave and Anna and their family. We just pray that you would continue to fill them up afresh on sabbatical. And we're excited about them being back this fall and uh, you doing awesome things to advance your mission and to get all the glory in Edmond. So help us today. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. Uh, over the course of the last 20 years, I've had some interesting conversations with friends about the way that the Apostle Paul ends his epistles. And I've just run with a lot of people that sort of don't like the way he finishes a book. Paul kind of makes it feel like he's just doing random shout outs when he gets to the end of a book. And he's bringing greetings from people we've never heard about with names we can't pronounce. And he's bringing greetings to people we've never heard about with names we can't pronounce. And it's kind of like, well, what's the point of that? Why take up space in these limited letters to talk to people that by the time the rest of the church is going to get these books, they're all dead and we don't know who they are. But here's the thing that I actually love about the way he ends his letters. What Paul does in his books is he unpacks for us transcendent, glorious truths about the personal work of God. He writes about the incarnation of God's son. He writes about the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. He writes about the miracle of the resurrection and the beginnings of the new creation. He writes about what's coming for all of us in Jesus, namely the new heavens and the new earth. And what Paul does in his letters is he just sort of starts these letters with soaring at 50,000 feet, just laying out before us things that are lofty and glorious that capture our imaginations and actually invite our souls to the place we need to spend more time, the place of awe. But then at the end of his letters, what's really beautiful to me is Paul actually takes these transcendent, lofty truths, and he always makes sure that we remember that the truth of God is not just abstract, philosophical nonsense that doesn't affect our lives. He brings it down to the ground level where we actually live. And he reminds us that these truths about God and the finished work of Jesus actually transform real relationships, real people who were pagans or were Jews and who got converted by the work of Jesus and now have profound relationship with each other. So when Paul gets to the end of his letters and he starts writing to these people and from these people, what we're actually reminded of is truth that actually has bearing for you and me today, namely that there's not one part of your life that's off limits to the transforming work of Jesus. It actually is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And in the trenches of regular life, trying to figure out how to manage our singleness well, trying to figure out how to navigate marriage and raising kids and working our jobs, all of these glorious truths about God that are big actually have micro applications to teach us how to live day in and day out in his presence with faith and with trust. We get equipped 
for what actually comes for us in real life. And that's why Paul ends these letters by naming people who are connected to what Jesus is doing in the early church. So today, as he wraps up this letter to the Corinthians, he's going to cover four really important things. He's going to talk about giving. He's going to talk about planning. He's going to talk about relationships between churches and inside of churches. And then he's going to close with a benediction that's just a 100% proof shot of what Paul is willing to live and what Paul is willing to die for, namely the grace of God in Jesus. So take your Bible. Let's walk through these things together um, and let's pray that God will meet us. The first thing Paul's going to mention is giving. And you can calm down. We're not going to do a second offering. We're not starting a building campaign today, uh, although that might be coming for us in the next year. Uh, So just chill out. This is about instruction from God's word, not trying to increase our budget. Paul's going to mention four things about giving. And uh, Andrew Wilson is a pastor in the UK that wrote a little helpful commentary about 1 Corinthians. And I love the way he sums up what Paul says in chapter 16. There's four things about giving that are really important. The priority of giving. And then there's the possibility of giving, the proportionality of giving, and the practicality of giving. Let me hit these really quickly. Look what Paul says in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. There's a standard practice of generosity in Pauline churches. What the Galatian Christians were doing with the spiritual discipline of giving is the same thing the Corinthians are to do with the spiritual discipline of giving. Now look what he says in verse 2. On the first day of every week, if you write in your Bible, just circle that phrase. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Mentioning the first day of the week is important on two different levels that show us the importance of giving. On the first level, it's a shout out or call back to the ancient practice of first fruits giving. That God's people in the Old Testament were not to give to God after they had done everything that they wanted to do with their income, after you've paid your bills and after you've consumed all the things that you wanted to consume in the course of a week. No, no, no. What God wants his people to do is an act of faith to actually name that all things we have are from God is to actually practice first fruits giving where we start by offering to God a portion of what he's given us. And Paul is rooting and grounding this priority of first fruits giving, not outside of worship, but deeply connected to what it is to worship. The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. And it's really amazing that primarily Jewish Christians in the early church that had celebrated the Sabbath on Saturday rapidly after the resurrection of Jesus that took place on Sunday shifted the day of worship to Sunday mornings because that was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. In some ways, Sunday's the first day of the week because Resurrection Sunday was the first day of the new creation. And so he wants them to practice priority giving as an act of worship because here's the deal. If you start to see our Heavenly Father rightly, it will shape your practice of generosity. What we see in God is that God is not stingy or miserly. What we have on every page of the Bible and what we have in creation, if we'll just open our eyes and look, is the reminder that God has eternally existed in the overflow of his own abundance. He created everything out of nothing and he made it glorious. And then in the fullness of time, that God that gave us all the gifts of creation gave us the greatest gift he could possibly give us in his son Jesus for our redemption 
Simply put, the reason Christians start to learn to live lives of generosity is because we're sons and daughters of a generous God that gives us everything we need for life and for godliness. So the priority of giving is just a reminder that it's impossible to grow to spiritual maturity while we have immaturity as it relates to our practice of giving. Now, the second thing he's going to mention about giving that also matters is the possibility of giving. And this is good news if you're not independently wealthy. You don't have to be rich to participate in the mission of God. Paul says in verse 2 that each of you, each of you, not just the super wealthy Corinthians, but even the Corinthians that are just trying to make it, they're all to put something aside and store it up as he prospers. And what's really special about this is that every Christian actually gets to share in the joy of knowing what it looks like to have your job connected to eternal work through the mission of God. It's not just wealthy Christians that get to participate. It's blue-collar Christians, it's young Christians, it's poor Christians, and that doesn't discount the beauty of wealthy Christians also getting to participate, but this is not this weird outcome-based deal where God's like, you know what, if you can't make a big impact on the bottom line for my kingdom, just go ahead and sit this one out. God wants all of his kids to, be, to participate in giving because it's a way in which we get to share in the heart of God for the nations. And I remember the early days of Frontline Church. Uh, it is not an exaggeration to say that we were one of the most dirt poor churches in the Midwest. Um, we had like three, three plus hundred people, and I think we had two real jobs between all of us. We, we had a ton of artists and college kids, and in the early days of Frontline, if you went to visit us on Broadway, you would have to navigate like the smoking section, just people smoking uh, like natural cigarettes that they hand rolled because they were all hipsters and you would run the gauntlet of cigarette smoke to come into a room of poor 20 year olds and every Monday our finance team would count the offering and they would call me and be like yeah it was like $300 and and all the dollar bills were soaked in beer and I think there were some ramen noodles mixed in. <laughs> We, we were so poor. We were so poor. But the thing that was so amazing is without any rich uncles, the participation of the people of God actually let us plant churches and carry out mission and care for the poor. Everybody gets to participate in what God's doing. And that's true with your spiritual gifts. Everybody's gifted. There are no ungifted Christians. And that's true with our income. And I'll just say this real fast before I move on. If you're young and starting out and you're trying to navigate college or you're a newlywed and you're trying to figure out disciplines of giving, if you buy into the lie that you'll wait till you're comfortable to start being a generous person, you will never be generous because the stakes will get higher and higher and you'll just acquire more demands of your income, and you'll get really stressed out, we actually should learn to give early on because that builds into our lives the priority and beauty of giving. Third thing he mentions is the proportionality of giving. He says, you should set it aside as the Lord prospers you. And what that means is that it's not a one-size-fit-all. Every Christian is going to be blessed by God Sometimes in greater ways, sometimes in lesser ways. Sometimes God is going to take us into the wilderness financially to teach us and train us to trust him. Don't raise your hand if you're there right now, but I've been there. Sometimes God is going to give us an abundant supply, and it's just a season of unbelievable productivity and fruitfulness. And what Paul says about as the Lord prospers you is this reminder that you don't have to stress in seasons of less that you're not giving what you would give in a season of more, it's okay to give proportionally as the Lord prospers you. 
If God is blessing you like crazy, you should figure out ways to be unbelievably generous with the poor and with the mission of God through the church. And if you're in a season where it's really tight and it's hard to give, which you might have given last season, you don't need to think that God's mad at you. He's not. And it's not like the living God is pacing heaven, stressed out about how he's going to make budget for his kingdom. God says, God says to the psalmist in the Old Testament, he's like, hey guys, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. That's a sarcastic way of God saying, I don't need anything. It's not like I'm asking you to give because I'm stressed about making ends meet. I'm asking you to give because that actually shapes and forms you in your character to look more like me. And then the last thing he mentions is the practicality of giving. And this, this is really beautiful. He mentions a couple of things that are super practical. He wants them to set aside these offerings. And then he mentions, so there will be no collecting when I come. And I just love this. This is great advice for all pastors. What Paul is saying is, I want you guys, Corinthians, to grow up and be responsible to give because I'm not going to show up and use coercion or manipulation to get you to participate. We're not going to do like a long offertory and play the organ and try to pull on your heartstrings. We're going to give you the opportunity to participate in what God's doing. I don't want to coerce you. And, and then we see practically that Paul wants her to be above board stewardship with giving from the leaders of the church. He says, I want you to send people that you accredit with letters to Jerusalem. And this just means I want you to pick some people that are above reproach, that the Corinthian church trusts, and I want you to actually vet them and certify them so that as they travel to Jerusalem, no one will get the wrong idea that there's funny business happening in the way that the church handles finances. And this is important even today. We, we want to have a fantastic finance team that oversees the administration of church funds so that we don't actually bring reproach to the gospel of Jesus. We want to do things really, really well as a church. And, and praise be to God, by his grace, uh, I believe with confidence that we do that, that we do that. So Paul mentions giving. The second thing he mentions, though, is planning. He talks about planning, and what we see in the life of Paul is this really beautiful and frankly rare dynamic where Paul is willing to engage in strategic planning. He's willing to take assertive action to plan, to make plans, to think about the calendar, to think about the future, but he's willing to do that knowing that Jesus is in charge and God is sovereign. And even though Paul can make plans, Jesus is always going to get the last word and our plans will rarely work out the way that we think that they're going to work out. Look what he says, starting in verse Five, he said, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I tend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Paul is strategic, he's thinking ahead, he's using his calendar, he's planning. Now, pause here for just a second. It's easy if you were raised in especially more like charismatic parts of the church to think that super spiritual people don't plan. They don't calendar, they don't save, we just sort of fly by the seat of our pants and we just get blown around by the winds and we love to take things out of context in scripture like, you know, Philip getting transported by the spirit to the Ethiopian eunuch and we just sort of get passive instead of actually using our intellect and our imagination to be intentional about our lives and the mission of God. And what we see in the Apostle Paul is the opposite of that. It's a good thing to plan. It's a good thing for young people to think about the next season of life. It's a good thing for husbands and wives to think about the future. It's a good thing for the leaders of the local church to think about what God might be leading us to do in the next season of the church. But we have to make our plans 
with pencil and hold them in open hands because Jesus is in charge. Look what Paul says in verse 7. I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. And then he says these words that are not just religious platitudes. It's true. If the Lord permits. So Paul's like, hey man, I got plans. I want you guys to help me on my journey. But here's the truth. I know that Jesus might have different plans. And according to Acts 16, sometimes we make plans and the spirit of God actually actively opposes our plans. Paul is willing to plan, but he's also willing to remember that God's the one that knows all things. God's the one that's sovereign. God's the one that's powerful. And therefore, every time we make plans, we make plans provisionally with the attitude of if the Lord wills. Now, this is really, really important for your life and for our church because plans rarely work out the way we think they're going to work out. And what we know from reading the book of Acts and some of Paul's other epistles is that all the plans that he just wrote to the Corinthians about, they all kind of fell apart. Paul didn't want to make a short journey. He wanted to spend time with them. And, and he wanted to actually winter with the Corinthians. But here's what actually happened. Um, Timothy shows up, like Paul said he was going to do. Timothy shows up, and the Corinthian church is such a horrible, hot mess dumpster fire that Timothy basically tells Paul, dude, you got to go and try to work this out. They are wilding out. So Paul shows up for a short visit, and that visit goes so poorly that Paul leaves after a really brief visit, and he later describes his time with the Corinthians on that visit as a painful time. So Paul writes him another letter, which is really interesting. It's not included in the canon of scripture. Paul sort of Paul sort of lets him have it in the letter that we don't have to the Corinthians. And by God's grace, the Corinthians experience at least a measure of repentance. And then Paul writes 2 Corinthians in light of that. The point being, things didn't happen the way Paul thought they were going to happen. And after over 20 years of being in pastoral ministry, here's what I know. We're a church that wants to make plans to the best of our ability. I'm so excited about this fall. We're going to dive into Genesis 1 through 11 because it's impossible in our cultural moment to have a biblical anthropology or like a robust vision for what it means to be human beings and the end for which we were created if you don't know our origin story. If you don't know our origin story, you're going to be so confused about sexuality and work and relationship and manhood and womanhood and even what it means to be in the image of God. So we're going to do deep work about that, and then we're going to do a counterformation module in all of our community groups where we're going to talk about identity, and we're going to do deep work about what does it look like to have a, a Christ-formed identity, not a simplistic identity, but the complex identity that God actually wants you ha to have. And then that work on Genesis and identity is going to lead us into the first of the year where we're going to get to do work around redeemed womanhood and come alongside our sisters and talk about feminine virtue. Now, all of that stuff is really exciting, and we're working really hard to prepare and plan, but here's what I know. Jesus is in charge of his church, and he might redirect, and we're never afraid to change or to hold plans with open hands. Now, there's one other thing I want to mention about planning that's really important. Paul mentions that God opened a wide door of effective or fruitful ministry in Ephesus. Isn't, isn't that amazing? Like we read in Acts about people in Ephesus meeting Jesus and repenting of sin and getting rid of their witchcraft books. It was this awesome move of God. But then Paul says something that's really relevant to planning. He says in the midst of this effective door for ministry that God opens, there are what? Many adversaries. Many adversaries. 
It's so easy to have a childish view of fruitfulness and obedience to Jesus and being in the will of God that leads us to wrongly expect that if you're in God's will, everything is going to be smooth sailing. And sometimes we make plans according to what God actually wants us to do. And then we get surprised at how hard it is. You pursue a girl and you... you go after her heart and you get wise counsel and you do pre-marriage counseling and you have these checks and confirmations that you're supposed to get married and then you get married and somewhere around week three, <laughs> you start to realize that you're, you're an idiot and what you really wanted to marry was a woman that acted like a dude. <laughs> Which by the way, that's like 80% of the conflict in marriage is that guys just, we want, we want, Someone that looks like a woman then acts like a dude, <laughs> which is unhelpful. It's, un, it's unhelpful and it's unwise. And all of a sudden we start second guessing. Maybe this is not God's will. Or maybe actually like the whole point of marriage is less about your happiness and more about the living God refining both of you and leading you to holiness and changing you. The point being, just because you're in the will of God doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Sometimes the most fruitful things that God is doing are going to be the things that actually result in the most difficulty and spiritual warfare. If God moves as deeply at Frontline Edmond this fall as I'm expecting, I think this is going to be a wild fall for you guys. I'm expecting people to meet Jesus and community groups to get multiplied and foundations to be laid for new churches. I expect you guys are probably going to have to figure out what to do to add another service because you guys are packed out. Um, it's going to be an amazing, amazing fall. And if it's an amazing fall, I expect temptation towards disunity, spiritual warfare, pushback, people to wild out in the life of the church. Why? Because that's what happens when God's moving. All right, now this leads us to the next thing. Paul's talked about giving. He's talked about planning. But then he talks about relationships between churches and in the church. And, and this is a moment where I actually want to just clearly unpack for you the DNA of our church as it relates to other churches. This is a huge part of who we are, and it's a great Sunday to get to talk about this, even as Christy from Sacred Mission was here to lead us in worship. Paul's going to mention that churches should partner together in sharing resources and leaders and burdens and prayers. Look what happens at the beginning of our chapter. Paul mentions the Galatian churches and the Corinthian church working together to get the back of the Jerusalem church. So three different regions working together to collaborate for mission. And then he's going to talk about Timothy coming, who's a shared leader who's being sent to strengthen the Corinthians. Look at verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. And then look at verse 19. There's not just the sharing of resources and leaders, but there's also just profound affection and prayer burdens that churches share. Verse 19 says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the, with the church in their house, they send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Now listen, this is so important. I, I was talking to a friend two weeks ago, and uh, my friend was talking about, just wax and poetic, about how great it is to have autonomous churches. And I was thinking, okay, like, I think I understand like where you're coming from, that yes, it's a good thing to have local churches that are led by qualified elders that oversee that local church. Praise be to God. We think that's biblical. 
But the word autonomy actually like triggers my spiritual gag reflex because I don't see anything in scripture that affirms the goodness of autonomy. And I don't see anything in personal experience that affirms the goodness of autonomy. In fact, when I see men become autonomous, I see horrible things happen in their relationships and their families. And I see churches that become autonomous and horrible things happen in their relationship and in their leadership community. What we see in the Bible is qualified leadership communities that are local pastors that oversee the church who are profoundly connected translocally to the movement of God in other churches. Churches that have relationships with other churches. And this is one of the things that we deeply care about as a church. We want to be a church that works with our other congregations and churches to strengthen other churches, to be strengthened, to collaborate, to plant new churches, to actually share resources and share mission. Um, we, we don't have one church with five congregations because we're trying to franchise or we're trying to build a big platform for any one pastor. We have a lot of churches that are working together simply because we think it's biblical and it's right and it's good to not just think about our own field, but to sometimes lift up our head and see what God's doing in other contexts. Right now, we've got Frontline Edmond and Frontline Downtown doing labor and prayer, crying out to God to raise up leaders so that we can see a new community planted in Guthrie, Oklahoma. Downtown Frontline right now is collaborating with Frontline South so that we can raise up leaders to plant a new congregation in Midwest City, Dell City. We've been praying for that part of OKC for like 15 years. Right, we're working right now with uh, John Murphy, the lead pastor of Frontline Fayetteville, the home of uh, United States Army Special Forces. We're working with those guys to try to prayerfully think about over the course of the next 20 years, raising up qualified church planters to plant churches in military towns to reach veterans and their families. I got to talk to a friend last week who's a church planner in Asia whose mom just died. And by God's grace, we're able to come around him and to help cover some funeral expenses for his precious mom because following Jesus in that context actually resorted, resulted in a great cost to her extended family. And then we're going to get to take a team in October and go visit Sujith and Cheryl in Mumbai to help encourage their leaders and be encouraged by them. Why? Because it's just right. It's biblical and it's good to collaborate together. And I think in this moment, there are so many churches getting sideways. There are eldership communities divided. There's lead pastors wilding out. And I'm so thankful that our church is deeply connected to other churches. Guys like Steve Huber in Philadelphia and guys like Donnie Griggs in North Carolina and guys like Steve Robinson in the UK that we get to serve each other and get each other's backs. There's a whole industry that's arisen in the local church of these consulting firms that actually don't know what it's like to lead in the local church that just charge astronomical funds to come and try to help pastors reserve, resolve internal conflict. And the result is that they usually take all the money of the church and then burn the church to the ground. And I don't want to do that. I want to be the kind of church that actually loves other churches and works with other churches for the glory of Jesus so that we can see the kingdom of God advance in our day and age. So we want, we want to do this. We want to engage this. And this means that this is not just something that the elders of our church care about. This is something we want you guys to care about. We want you guys to actually sow prayers into what God might do in the next three to five years in Guthrie. Sow prayers into other contexts. Be aware of what God's doing in sacred mission in rural Iowa and what he's doing in our partners all over the world. 
Now, he's also going to mention relationships in the church, and he's going to point out a few things that are sort of countercultural for us that really matter. He's going to mention that we should follow qualified leaders, honor and recognize people of virtue and service, and greet each other with a holy kiss. Let me show you just a few things. Verse 15. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and labor. He's saying, hey, guys, I want you to actually know the leaders that labor among you and, and leaders that actually are faithful leaders, not perfect, but faithful leaders, leaders of character, leaders that love Jesus. I want you to actually follow their leadership in the local church. Now, this is not culty, blind obedience. This is not following a leader into a burning building when that leader has abandoned orthodoxy or no longer repents of sin or is like blowing up his family. But we as the people of God need to know the leaders among us and actually work to respect and follow their lead. We're about to kick off an elder development cohort where we've got somewhere around 30 guys in our church. They're gonna take nine months to do a deep dive training to grow around a biblical vision for eldership. And, and we're doing that because we wanna have the kind of leaders in our church that are not microwave, but instead crock-potted, so that if you're in a community group at Frontline Church, you're always one step away from a qualified pastor or deacon that actually wants to shepherd and lead the church. That's a good thing. He also mentions that we should honor those of virtue and service, and this is really, really beautiful. Look what happens in verse 17. He says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus. These names, by the way, are all up for grabs for babies. You could even rename your baby Fortunatus. As long as your baby's under five, renaming it should do no permanent damage. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. Now look at what he says. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition. Give recognition to such people. I love this. Here's what Paul is saying. The only thing in the local church that we should try to outdo each other in is what? Showing honor. And honor is not flattery. It's not manipulation. It's not sucking up. A healthy culture of honor in the local church is when you see virtue and service that looks like Jesus, points to Jesus, and smells like Jesus. You don't just walk away and ignore it. You name it and affirm it so that it can actually increase in the life of the church. I was reading questionnaires from the guys that are going through our elder development cohort. We, we do detailed questionnaires about how they came to faith and the rhythms of their families. And I was brought to tears multiple times as these guys just wrote about how they wanted to love and pursue their wives and care for their kids and how their rhythms of prayer shaped their character. And the whole time I'm reading, I'm like, dude, this is like super motivating for me to want to grow in my walk with Jesus. When I got to sit with those guys during interviews, I wanted to say, hey man, I actually want to honor the way you pointed to Christ and led me towards wanting to follow Jesus more intentionally in my home. Right? I want us to have that kind of culture as a church. And, and among you ladies, I think it would be one of the most beautiful things, one of the most countercultural things in the world if we could flip that worldly dynamic, we're so often in the world, and this happens with both men and women, uh, but that weird dynamic where instead of feeling threatened or comparing ourselves when you encounter virtue and service, wouldn't it be amazing and freeing, especially for the, the young women, the daughters that are being raised in our church, wouldn't it be powerful to have women open their mouths and say, hey, 
when you engage that situation with your kid with love and grace, that helped me grow as a mom. The way that you have that hard conversation actually makes me want to do my own work to get better, to grow in maturity. I want us to have the culture of right honoring, not sucking up in flattery, where we name virtue and we name service as a church. Now, the last thing he's going to mention inside of the church with the relationships is that they're to greet each other with a holy kiss. This is so powerful. In the early church, by the time of Justin Martyr in the mid-second century, the kiss of peace was a formal part of the church's Eucharistic liturgy. So when the the Christians in the early church would come to the Lord's Supper to take the bread and take the wine, there was a formal part of their service where they were to greet each other with the kiss of peace because the kiss came to symbolize what Jesus had purchased to unify Christians and to bind them together in love. The kiss of peace was this profound symbol that the gospel of Jesus doesn't just have vertical dynamics where we're reconciled to the Father, it has horizontal dynamics where we're reconciled to one another. And the kiss of peace was a moment where where if there was division between Christians in the early church before, it's, can we just admit, it's hard to have conflict with a person and also greet them with a warm kiss of peace. And so it was a moment where the Christians got to evaluate, oh man, I'm sideways with this person. We had a business dealing that went south or that person hurt my feelings or I'm offended with that person or I feel overlooked by that person. The kiss of peace was this moment where Christians had a chance to make sure that they were keeping short accounts with each other and that they were offering each other the grace that Jesus offered them. Now, a kiss of peace in their culture was not awkward because in the Greco-Roman world, that's how they greeted each other. If we instituted the literal kiss of peace, the creepiest people in our church would be the ones that would just get creepier. (laughs) So we're not going to institute the kiss of peace, but we can actually embody what the kiss of peace meant. And every single week on, on the Lord's Day, when we say, hey, greet each other with the same love that Jesus has welcomed you with, that's the same thing as the kiss of peace. And my prayer is that that's not just a throwaway part of our service, but if there's something that's going on between you and a brother or sister, it's okay for you to grab them and go out in the hallway or parking lot and work it out before you come back. When we go to the Lord's Supper, that's a moment to make sure that you're staying connected and tight with your brothers and sisters. In our community groups, when we do family meal a couple of times a month, that's a time to actually embody what the kiss of peace meant, the unity and the love that we have as brothers and sisters, to care for each other. Now, let's end with this. Um, Paul gets to his benediction, and like I said before, Paul's benediction is just kind of like, it's kind of like the very essence of everything that he's living and everything that he's going to die for. And in his benediction, he's going to mention two things explicitly that are really powerful. He's going he's to model for us that truth and love actually go together, and then he's going to remind us that grace is the beginning and end of the Christian life. So quickly, let's look at these together. Paul is going to model truth and love in a way that we don't know how to deal with as Americans today. Look at verse 22. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now, that's a hard thing to say. That would be a hard thing to read from a spiritual father. The apostle Paul is warning them with this grave warning. Hey, man, if you're not growing in obedient love for Jesus, then you might still be under the curse. You might be anathema. And if you carry that disobedience to Jesus, that lovelessness towards Jesus to its final conclusion, you will be anathema. You will be cursed. That is serious. That is dire. That is sobering. 
But the same guy that gave that warning in the same paragraph says in verse 24, my love be with you all in Jesus. It's not a contradiction for Paul to write dire warnings and then to say, and you know what? Like you have the totality of my heart. I love you. I care so deeply about you as a spiritual dad that I'm willing to warn you and my warnings and my love are not contradictory. My warnings and my love are married together in me working for your good. Now, we live in a moment where it's really hard for us to believe that the kisses of an enemy are profuse, but the wounds of a friend bring life. And we're tempted to believe, we're tempted to believe that some people who simply have a posture of apathy towards us that don't care enough about us to say hard things are our friends. And we're tempted to believe that people that actually love us enough to risk the relationship and say hard things are enemies. And what I so want for us as a church is to be the kind of men and women that are not like flipping over every rock, trying to scrutinize each other for sin. That's like fundamentalist, legalistic culture. Like you also have to know like, hey, we're all human beings and sometimes it's best to just let love cover a multitude of sins and just chill out. But at the very same time, there's going to be situations and circumstances where you see repeated patterns that are destructive and you see a brother or sister going down the wrong path or you see a husband not honoring his wife or you see kids, teenage kids that you're friends with that are wilding out and rebelling against their parents. And if you're really friends with these people, if you really love these people, then the appropriate response is not to tell them what they want to hear. It's to actually bring the wound of a friend. I want to have brothers in my life that love me enough to do that. Right? The litmus test for real relationship is not the vibe test or the don't rock the boat test. The actual test of a real relationship is are we willing to risk the relational framework because we love each other so much that we're fighting for each other? Then Paul's going to close with this. And, and these will be our final words from 1 Corinthians for this go around. Uh, maybe in 50 years we'll preach through this book again. Paul is going to say, he's going to say, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. And I love this because Paul began 1 Corinthians with grace. He said, I thank God for the grace of God that's been given to you always. He begins the book with grace. He ends the book with grace. The book of 1 Corinthians is bookended with grace. And that's really significant because if you've been with us as we've walked through this book, you know that there was a lot that was messed up with the Corinthian church doctrinally, relationally, morally, there's a lot of problems. And yet it's the grace of God that's at the beginning of the book. And it's the grace of God that's at the end of the book. And that's a reminder that if you want to sum up the Christian life, the best way you could possibly sum it up is to define it as the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's not that we earn, it's not that we get to God, it's not our morality, it's not our achievement, it's not us being better than anybody else. If you want to define the Christian life the most clearly that you could possibly define it, the Christian life is grace at the beginning, that God pursues you and loves you and did everything for you that he requires from you through Jesus Christ. And it's the grace of God that's going to get you to the end to present you on the great day. It's his grace that's going to preserve you and get you across the finish line. The Christian life starts with grace and it ends with grace. And in the middle, we're working out that grace and trying to figure out how it applies to our struggle to follow and obey Jesus. As we come to the Lord's Supper today, man, I just, I just wonder what it would feel like corporately in this room 
if we believed more deeply the grace of God and what it says about us? What would it believe in our struggle against sin if you believe that God's not mad at you? That Jesus drank all the wrath that you deserved on the cross and therefore there's no punishment for those that are in Christ. All that condemnation's been taken. That doesn't mean that you then just check out. If you really experience the grace of God, it will make you want to fight sin. It'll make you want to grow in holiness. What if you really believe that your father's countenance towards you is one of delight and joy, affection, commitment, instead of one of constant disappointment and fatigue? Because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says again and again and again, through the finished work of Jesus, you've been given the righteousness of Christ and the father that said to his unique only begotten son, this is my beloved son with whom I'm pleased, now says that to you as a son, as a daughter, because you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Corinthians starts with grace and it ends with grace. And my prayer is that your life and my life would start with grace and end with grace.